let's see. I don't know if I have any funny, funny jokes. You don't need a joke. Yeah. You know, I don't know. What's this funnier is a joke. than true life? Yeah, this what's, is, say, what's yes. funnier than, what's a bigger joke than this book? <laughs> a specter is haunting Catherine Page Harden, the specter of eugenics. <laughs> yes. Welcome to the Dove Panel. Patrons, thank you so much, as always, for supporting the show and our work. We couldn't do any of this without you. Don't forget to use code for a discount in the merch store. And if you want to help us out a little bit more, you can always share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, or follow us at Death Panel underscore. Today, we're going to sit down and talk about Catherine Page Harden's new book, The Genetic Lottery, but oh God. not because it's... <laughs> Genetic partic- Powerball. Yeah. <laughs> not because it's particularly good or bad. <laughs> um, it's not remarkable, really, in any way, shape, or form. But I think what's key about this and um, you know what we did touch on when we talked about the New Yorker profile of Catherine that... Um, Some couple, weeks ago. Yeah. yeah, about a month ago, is that specifically... Catherine is positioning herself as being anti-eugenic. It is a approach to using genes and genetic like statistical study towards anti-eugenics, she says. And I think that that's a pretty bold claim and worth like worth actually trying to dig into what the book is, because if it were to be a truly anti-eugenic statistical revolution that that's being proposed here, right? Like, I, I think it would be worth discussing, but that's absolutely not the case. Yeah. So, I mean, I think in a way, though, you're kind of skipping ahead a few points, because I think it's really notable that this book is not billed as, you know, although it, although towards the end, uh, Catherine Page Harden does get to this whole stance where she says, like, the the whole thing I've been articulating this entire time is what I would refer to as, like, the anti-eugenic stance or whatever. That's not how this book is, you know, presented or, or billed as. I think one of the reasons to even talk about it is that, like, it appears to be... I mean, I don't know how well this is actually doing for, like, an academic book. It's published by Princeton. Um, so t- take that uh, with that what you will. But um, it does appear to be... I don't know, relatively popular as like a pop sci, yeah, like pop psychology book or, or it's whatever. It's getting um, coverage as if it were, yeah. Right. It's definitely getting a lot of coverage as if it were. Uh, people are talking about, you know, the, the, the main claim of this book, which I think we can get to the, uh, I, you know, Catherine Page Harden's big, I am taking the anti-eugenic stance thing because I think that the way that she frames that whole thing is debatable. But I do think that the the main thrust, which is getting all this coverage for, is this idea that like we can't, uh, as I think she says in that same section, be gene blind. Mm-hmm. Drawing the analogy to uh, when people say they color are color blind, color blind, which is uh, an interesting choice. It's a bold, um, bold choice. <laughs> but saying we can't be gene blind when we you know design public policy or when we think about these things when we conduct research, um, we can't. 
we can't do those things. This is kind of what she's getting interviewed about and, and talked to about saying that, like, in fact, you know, a, a ton of people, especially liberals, like want to believe that genetics do not matter, that they do not in, impact life chances or or life outcomes and things like that. And that we should be we should be, um, you know, gene blind to all of these things. And what I, Catherine Page Harden, am here to say is, in fact, no, bravely, you know, we must we, we must consider the impact of genetics mm-hmm. on how people are. That's the only way we're going to design equitable social right. policy, et cetera. And as a, not, not necessarily as a result, but I will say that to, to kind of cir- circle back to where I began, you know, what's interesting is actually like, it was re- rather difficult to even find like a physical copy of this book. Right. So, which, like, which it's unclear if that's a result of like just general shipping and publishing delays yeah, or right. if it's it because be it. it's sold out. I'm hoping that the supply chain, right? Like I hope that this is the supply chain inflating the perception of hype in this situation. Right, but if it is popularity, then this episode is here for you exactly. to talk to the people in your life who may have bought this thinking that they're super yeah. great. Or who may have bought this thinking that it's a 200 pages about why some people go to college and why some people take more math classes right this is like okay the the publishing strategy here is very like very au courant for like the last five years i think which is like take whatever topic that the person happens to be writing about and then you slap on one of five different uh (laughs) you know sort of uh like holotypes for like general framing that will get on NPR or whatever, which is like <laughs> our tribal differences, the polarization, right. uh, like uh, <laughs> social fragmentation, or in this case, like inequality, right? And you you can get a sense very early on in the book just how, like, it, it's important not to oversell the idea that this book is one coherent thing. Yeah. There's a bunch of different things she's probably like doing in her research. But then, you know, to make the big, I don't know, I guess in music they would call it the industry push, uh, <laughs> you know, you you like you package it all together and you like sell it as one thing. But like, I don't regard that as really serious here because and you could to me, the the lack of serious is evidence in in like the first, mm, I don't know, chapter where it's like when she's talking about inequality, she starts by talking about the skills gap. Mm. Which is just like one of the most roundly like refuted theses of why inequality exists, like yeah. period, in any discipline, like of any time. And it's it's obviously obviously like still repeated, but like the idea that like what's generating inequality is you know, in addition, like, oh, skills, people's attainment of higher education, and so on. <laughs> Um, and the idea that inequality, generally speaking, is inequality at the bottom of the income quintiles rather than inequality generated by what's happening at the very top of the income distribution. <laughs> yeah. Like these are things that I think you, you might have excused these sort of like s- s- Freudian slippages or I guess maybe Galtonian slippages, if you want to be uh, <laughs> consistent with this this book, uh, since we're talking about distributions, it's a little statistics joke. Uh, the uh, like you could have excused them maybe in 2014 or 15, but 2021, it's like 
you're not really that serious about like <laughs> what are you really writing about it's not in it because I, I i'll tell you right now i can i know you don't even have to make your argument i don't even have to agree or disagree with anything you write about genetics per se i know that you're not serious because you're talking about the damn skills gap like immediately yeah. so anyway that's i just like uh i'm I'm not going to say I was a careful reader of every chapter of this book, but I gave myself a, I wrote myself a permission slip in the first 30 pages to not be, uh, because of what you wrote about the skills. Yeah. I mean, no, I, I, I totally feel that. And I think it's like very evident, um, by the first 30 pages, uh, there are six or seven notes in my copy of the margins that just says, who is this book for Mm -hmm. with question marks, like and underlines and, and over and over you kind kind of get this weird sense as she's setting it up that she is very very um insecure about her claims too there is this sort of shield that gets built up in the first half and it's full of all this stuff like the yeah. skills gap and clueless metaphors and extended cookbook, uh, cookbook and, jokes yeah. and it's like all of this airport trash this book is almost like three or four different types of airport book well i mean it's fitting that she teaches intro psychology courses because if oh, anyone totally. has ever sat through like you know one of these 50 to like 300 people like intro to psychology classes it's like the same level it's it, it's basically like sitting the first half is kind of like sitting through one of those with the notable exception that she's you know clearly as you as you mentioned um you know i think referring to it as um be referred to it as like putting up her shield or whatever the whole first half where she's talking about uh where she's trying to like stake her claims and make and very specifically kind of like lay out uh, this study says this this study says this therefore um you know i, I think the bi- the big claim if i'm getting this right then is basically that like her her idea is so there's all this stuff for like social policy for for research for all these purposes we look at things like socioeconomic status mm-hmm. right or all all these you know different like thing all the things that uh, get rolled up into that we look at socioeconomic status as an indicator for outcomes and as an indicator for certain things um, even in terms of like health we look at that in terms of like health risks because right. socioeconomic status as we know is a huge uh, indicator for environmental or or whatever just all the other tragic horrible fucking things that capitalism does to you right like socioeconomic status is a good indicator of like a lot of life outcomes and chances right right and she says well if you're gonna look at that which maybe has a you know x percentage likelihood chance of predicting life outcomes right then you simply must look at the polygenic risk score or the at polygenic scoring because in fact it predicts even more Right. Then socioeconomic status. Like literally yeah. she says this and then stakes this figure, which I don't find her articulation of particularly convincing. We don't have to necessarily go into it, but stakes this figure that it's like 10% predict, not predictive. I, I think she wouldn't say predictive, but it's like 10%, you know, of the variation can be explained by. Y- right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and it's like, I think as you start to read it, you get this sense that, okay, what she's essentially arguing for here is she's making this case using 
the classic frameworks of a sort of a, sort of liberal discussion of education policy and education investment and how that correlates to a good life under capitalism. And what she's doing is sort of saying, OK, you know, for those people who identify as people who, quote unquote, care about educating children. Right. Which I think is a very specific demographic. Right. It's it's aimed at this group. But but it's trying to make sure right like very very clearly that that like the author feels safe before it goes into the second half and like some of the things that get set up and some of the things that are being positioned as what are the reasons for why we have to do this i think are really telling so instead of like skimming through the first part and skimming through the book i read it really closely because i wanted to know where all the edges she was making for herself was because so much of like the writing actually is defining what she's not and and being defensive from the get-go you know i'm not doing this i'm not doing eugenics i'm not doing race science race science is xyz I'm defining what race science is and then I'm defining what I'm doing, which is not race science. Right. I mean, it, it's classic, though. She sets up right. a very a perfectly like respectable or respectable sounding, um, you know, like it, it's like constructing a, a space of reasonability or right. whatever to sure. in, in which to discuss things. But I think that there, there are some parts I, I've pulled some things that I do want to read from the book, but I just want to say, I think on this point, actually, it's it's useful to say no matter what she says at the beginning, right. I want I actually want to begin before we talk about any of the other like big like the big points in the book, I actually want to begin with the conclusion, right? Cause, really quickly, right? Because I was gonna say like whatever you whatever you might think this book is about by halfway through, that's absolutely not true. Because just just wait for this. Um, I hope that you guys both. I mean, actually, I I wish that you guys didn't have to get to the conclusion. I would I hope I would hope getting to the conclusion on nobody in this book. But it's very funny because she basically goes um all she gets all the way through her her main argument and then she gets to the end and she's like oh by the way covid's happening while i'm writing this <laughs> and her conclusion is i shit you not uh some deaths are simply pulled from the future um so <laughs> let me let me just re- read <laughs> let me Surprise! just read from this this is like literally a couple paragraphs at the end she starts you know talking about how uh, covid is this responsibility to each other etc it means like wearing masks washing hands it also means institutional responses, financial relief, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, things that would alleviate people having to go to work, even though they're sick. A bunch of stuff that, as we've talked about over the last year, people, you know, we've, for the most part, pretty much fucking failed to do. Um, mm-hmm. And she says, quote, what our responsibilities to each other do not include, however, not is italicized. I'm not adding that for inflection. Do not include however is pretending that everyone is equally vulnerable to disease in (laughs) fact insisting that everyone's biological vulnerability to (laughs) COVID-19 is the same young or old immune compromised or healthy would be both ludicrous and dangerous she continues later for the past century there has been a persistent and malicious drumbeat from those espousing a eugenic ideology that the vulnerable deserve their vulnerability because of their biological inferiority with good intentions there has been a corresponding drumbeat from those determined to uncouple social vulnerability from biology but a commitment to anti-eugenics does not require pretending that social vulnerability is uncoupled from biology any more than an effective response to pandemic disease requires one to pretend the elderly are no more susceptible 
acceptable than the young. So, yeah, basically, if you've listened to our show at any point in the last year and you've heard us talking about the death pulled from the future line, this is that. Right. I mean, you know, no one's going to pretend like obviously to, to some degree, it's like you, you can't pretend that like everyone is literally, uh, you know, Equally obviously vulnerable, immune, right? Yeah, obviously, right. immune compromised given people occupation, are more vulnerable. Given right. like where you live, just like it's like she's like when she's saying very she's like. It's 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 doing the classic sort of problem of like citing one nominal figure as opposed to thinking about overall variation. It's like uh, she's like because variation exists and because some of that variation might be genetic, right? The genetic thing is the thing that you really have to focus on. Like leave aside the fact that we warehouse like that we have the the vulnerable and then we warehouse them in nursing homes. Okay? Yeah. Like leave aside any like other like aspect of like the things that would like generate variation across people who might be predisposed or vulnerable to like something and like none of that is important. That's the same thing that happens all throughout the book. It's like it doesn't for her it doesn't matter that a lot of other things explain variation too and actually ex- explain variation <laughs> To a great degree more than whatever we could say about genetics. It's like the fact that there's like de minimis like uh, variation that could be explained by genetics at all, which we can get into like the any sort of validity that claim has, you know, momentarily. But like that's that's the sort of like little substitution argumentative trick. It's like it's a really it's a like a really obvious and transparent thing that she just doesn't seem to like <laughs> recognize that her editors did not catch or care about or really. care. Yeah. I, I think or it's care about, yeah. I mean, it's, if you if you go one paragraph prior to where uh, the quote that I already read, uh, she cites uh, someone named Sarah Bessie, who is a author and pastor, mm. uh, which just sounds like you're a pastor then who summarized the various recommendations given by public health officials as all being versions of the same message, quote, love the vulnerable with your choices. So she's cited this pastor, right, who says, love the vulnerable with your choices. This pastor seems to have a better grasp on viral spread and how diseases move through a population epidemiologically than the author of this book, by the way, because then she proceeds in the next paragraph to pretend that viruses seem to like only affect people at an individualistic level right so then it's like she's like so she sets up the first thing where she's like listen it's not all about you it's not about personal responsibility it's not about choice it's about collectivity and working towards a greater good and loving the vulnerable with your choices and also do whatever the fuck you want because you're not as vulnerable (laughs) as the elderly people and so it's unrealistic to treat everyone the same and it's no but and and but that's the thing it's that what collectivity quote-unquote collectivity would mean to to her or to basically like you know it's it's kind of a classic thing with this general like sphere of ideology right it's like what collectivity means is actually a network of hyper individualized uh people making hyper individualized choices etc that on net should have some sort of you know quote-unquote collectivity to it but for the most part is a is a situation where like these people's again life life chances their general like outcomes their attributes or whatever is like attributable more to you know genetic mm-hmm. the, the the genetic lottery right um than to a bunch of other factors um you know she goes to great length to say like those other factors can obviously you know she says like we're not doing the nature versus nurture thing i'm simply saying that genetics does uh influence things and it's like how to put it i think this is also borne out really well though in another uh passage that 
like it gets really like quite to the heart of this because she's very i think she's very careful in a lot of um the sections uh, right this is what i mean by the shield idea right um but i think that sometimes it's just like there are moments when the that shield drops or there's like a very obvious vulnerability Mm -hmm. that she just clearly did not consider and the results are where you're like okay this is what you're actually saying so for example she says uh and i believe this is in the chapter titled i swear to god i'm not kidding personal responsibility um which is about how genetics influences how we think about personal responsibility which starts with stuff on crime of course right um and i i I think this is from that chapter i may i may be wrong uh it doesn't really matter either way there is a chapter called personal responsibility so that's like funny (laughs) in and of itself but Quote, just as genetic differences between people create differences between them in their likelihood of developing speech problems, so too do genetic differences between people create differences between them in their likelihood of being homeless. Then this is this is wild because she then basically says, I didn't really have to say that because I have no backing. She says there has not been a GWAS or twin study of homelessness. GWAS and twin studies are the two types of study that she is, you know, attributing uh, all, all of these findings to basically there has not been one of these studies, genetic study of homelessness, but the statement is almost certainly true. Sure. So here's just a a claim staked on nothing that is just wild. About 20%, uh, she says, of the homeless population has a serious mental illness like bipolar (laughs) disorder or schizophrenia. About 16% are estimated to have a serious substance use disorder such as alcoholism or opioid addiction. Ultimately, the cause of homelessness is not being able to afford housing, which is almost true. Yeah, I mean, that's at least you're saying that. However, she continues and... If people had not inherited certain genetic variants, then the probability of them experiencing all these things, mental illness and addiction and poverty would be different. And that is uh, disgusting. I don't know. uh, Just like. That's I'll just say that actually, though, this um, despite the fact that as she's saying, she's positioning herself as the anti eugenicist. And this is a book about an anti-eugenic public policy analysis lens for looking at education spending, right? Um, What she has just laid out in this beautiful paragraph denigrating unhoused people as if they're inhuman um, is exactly, exactly the same pitch that Charles Davenport gave (laughs) to the New York Times uh, right. at like at this splashy, splashy, huge interview feature they did when the Cold Spring Harbor Institute opened, where he said, listen, you know what I mean? There are just some things that are going to be inherited and that will have negative impacts on the population. And if we don't design social spending and social policy around addressing those negatively inherited character traits and behaviors, which we acknowledge we don't know very much about, but we do know that genetics has some influence on, um, then we can build a better society if we just try to help everyone by spending money on rehabilitation and asylums and and all sorts of other <laughs> carceral things, right. then um, we're going to be wasting money. And the funny thing is that, of course, like that definition of eugenics is nowhere to be found in this entire book because yeah. that's her pitch. Right. But if you actually look at 
what eugenics is, what the ideology has been and what the proposals have been year after year after year. The sort of idea of like Nazi gas camps well encompassed in what eugenics is and was like absolutely is the exception, not the rule. The rule is stuff like what Catherine's talking about. These proposals about, listen, we're not saying that genetics are fate. We're just saying there is some heritability here. And if we don't address it, then we're wasting money. And that's actually what eugenics boils down to at the core. Yeah, I mean, I so that I think is the pitch to to sort of liberals, right? Is is like the first layer of it is that for the last fifty to sixty years, liberal social scientists have treated inequality as something that is generated by individual level characteristics, behaviors. Whatever you want to call it, you know, that, that like it's something that through methodological individualism, <laughs> you can explain with statistics and then, you know, the the sort of underpants gnomes thing. It's like, well, then we'll solve it. Right. right. But the but the thing that liberals, you know, just had to take a big L on in, you know, by the 1980s is that once you're down the stream of ignoring structural explanations for inequality yeah you then seeded like what is the charles murray book called losing ground like the liberals <laughs> book should have it should have been called seeding ground because that's that's what happens like the idea like all of her little nostrums at the end like use genetic information to help people not to classify them and you know uh don't waste money on these things that don't work it like even if one is to accept any amount of the project that she has here, which I don't. Right. Like <laughs> the level of policy, like naivete uh, of a yeah. true believer here. And just like having ignored 50 years of social policy making, And it's like the idea Absolutely. that people wouldn't just uh, her point, her like the strongest version of her argument, her strongest version of her argument that she pitches to like liberals is. You know, right now, there are all of these things which we still socially explain. Our sociological explanation is uh, people's meritoriousness, their virtue, whatever. Uh, But really, we can substitute out this genetic lottery of life that should, in this like Rawlsian social philosophy type way, (laughs) get us to a more like, like if. Her her pitch is like, if the Rawlsian thing is true, if you don't know where you're going to end up uh, behind like the veil of ignorance, you don't know what kind of uh, place in the lottery you're going to like get, you know what your number is going to be. Then we, you know, and if that's based on genetics and we have to do these sort of genetically redistributive things, the the thought there, though, is like as if (laughs) those two quantities, genetics and virtue or worth aren't already essentially collapsed on one another in social philosophy and like common explanations (laughs) for things as if when people say, well, certain people are genetically inferior or whatever, as if that isn't also 
a claim about worth that's generated by social, you know, attitudes about a way a person is. It's not as if when people make <laughs> genetic, like racist geneticist claims, they're like actually like, oh, yeah, I've actually taken a look at, you know, the data. And like, <laughs> it's not like the people who like listen to Jared Taylor or whatever are like, yeah, well, actually, you know, if you right. look at the, you know, uh, the the distribution, the, like the Galton, the Galton chart or whatever, they're like, <laughs> you get to this. It's like they have categories that they hold to be true about people's worth and then whatever fucking thing exists scientifically they use that to backfill it that's that's what the field sisters call racecraft that is yeah. the basic aspect of it and any idea that this scientist has has like somehow nutted that problem has somehow like figured that out or like found some sort of like 12 dimensional chess <laughs> with like the best available this fucking bullshit like this this is no better than any of the racecraft that was done by well-meaning liberals 30 or 40 years ago. Yes. Right. It's the same thing. And and again, I keep coming back to the idea that you even if you accept that there's like some scintilla of genetic explanation within, by the way, just the sort of like studies that they have is like white European ancestry, which collapsing ancestry and race is like another issue. But we'll we'll get to that momentarily. Even if you just look at that, in those studies, there are other things like parents' income, uh, like social characteristics of one's, like the, the social lottery of life, the economic lottery of life that are far more explanatory than anything like genetics is going to throw at you. And like, and if you want any proof of this, look at the, uh, you know, incoming class at any Ivy League university and, you know, do a polygenic risk score and then get like, you know, do the cross tabs by income. Like, guarantee you, there are going to be a lot of students who really do well and really like, uh, you know, succeed and has nothing to do with their polygenic risk score, it has everything to do with the money that they inherited, the wealth that they inherited, the in kind things that they inherited. Uh, right. from their parents like inheritance in the sense of like <laughs> something that would or would not be subject to the estate or death tax <laughs> uh like not their genetics not genetic inheritance yeah exactly i'm glad that we're collapsing and uh, not i'm glad that we're um you know putting these uh two things together though because i think this is a really important this like it really gets to i think the heart of a lot of the issues here and there's a lot i mean there's a lot going on here but i think to um, respond to a couple of things for instance like what both you and b i think articulate very well is this fact that for all of this um you know i joke about like she 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 quite literally says like the specter of eugenics haunt haunts mm -hmm. the field of uh of genetic research etc et and so she's like very she's very aware uh, of this history but she's very aware of a very selective almost ahistorical um, history of eugenics and what it is and what it constitutes. And, you know, as it's important to note that like, as, as both of you are basically saying, you know, this lineage of thinking is, you, you know, like we have this sort of like cartoon version of it in, in, I think popular discourse where it's like, in order to do eugenics, you have to basically be like, it, it's like, the people who do eugenics literally look like fucking Dick Dastardly and Muttley from Wacky Racers <laughs> or something like that. You know what I mean? They don't look look like people like Catherine Page Harden. These like well-meaning liberals who, uh, who you know want want to do all these things for like individuated social policy, etc. Um, and she spends so much time backpedaling on this, right, and saying like the problem. I mean, in fact, the over and over again she says in the book essentially that the problem with eugenics was not 
in the research, it was that the people who were doing it were bad and had bad takeaways and bad intentions. And then if we simply take those things and do them for good purposes, Mm-hmm. The fact that that the fact that like the 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 crucial misstep of eugenics was in imposing a hierarchy on things. And then, of course, she goes on to uncritically cite things like high polygenic scores, like literally she uses over and over again the phrase high polygenic scores, which is, you know, I don't know, high, low sounds like a fucking hierarchy to me or high and low IQ test scores, which she then admits to for all the again even though she goes on at length about the the problems of IQ uh, tests, she then says, but they're still really important. And in fact, I've conducted thousands of them as though that's like fantastic. But I want to, with all this in mind, I think that this, the confluence of that with this individuation of uh, like of, of risk of individuation of like what uh, people's, life outcomes are, are supposed to be what policy is supposed to do even what you know what social policy what public policy what all of these what any kind of like social interventions uh, or economic interventions by the government etc or whoever are supposed to do all that like conflation points to exactly why going down that liberal road of the way that policy has been done researched and talked about over the last you know many decades actually has a huge critical vulnerability in that it leaves the door open for fucking pop psychologists like this asshole to come in Mm -hmm. and say like well if you're talking about you know these individual uh risks chances issues etc well i've got a solution for you it's called psychology etc it's called twin studies it's called gwas it's called genomic fucking sequencing etc and so you know unfortunately it's like like with so many things in the political economy i think like to refute people like her you also have to refute you know the like these bigger structures right because right. if you if you don't change the way that those policies are made and studied then it just turns into it, it just like you you continue to leave it open for interpretation like this and i know that i've been as i've been going on for a while here but i have a very i, th- I, I have a passage. very indicative passage on this yeah. if you will allow mm-hmm. me um okay so this actually this i pulled specifically because She's critiquing a line that we ourselves use sometimes. Um, This is a section. I don't think you'll be surprised now that I've said that. Uh, This is a section headlined. We already know what to do. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'm not going to read the whole section, uh, but she says essentially. So she she cites um, this uh, bioethicist, Eric Perens, who says, uh, quote, we continue to overinvest our hope in genetics. Uh, The tools of genetics research uh, will not reduce, much less eliminate the health disparities that are produced by unjust social conditions. And this is her and she frames her rebuttal to this basically she says uh this is again Catherine page harden quote those who like parents see genetics as an overhyped distraction from addressing the social determinants of inequality often assert that the insights and tools of genetics are unnecessary uh in italics because we already know what to do to address inequalities in education health and wealth 
Reading such assertions, one might imagine that there is a vast repertoire of policies and interventions <laughs> that have been proven to be effective at addressing social inequalities in education and health, and that are just waiting in the wings to be deployed if we can only muster sufficient political will. But in fact, experts in the fields of education, behavioral intervention, and social policy have repeatedly reminded us that often well-intentioned efforts to improve people's lives fail to make any difference at all and sometimes make things worse. In the world of education, one can glimpse the paucity of successful intervention research by perusing the What Works Clearinghouse, <laughs> a resource curated by the Institute of Education Sciences, the research and evaluation arm of the U.S. Department of Education. A review of randomized control trials, RCTs, conducted by the Institute of Education Sciences concluded, quote, a clear pattern of findings in these studies is that the large majority of interventions evaluated produced weak or no positive effects compared to usual school practices. Similarly, a report by the Laura and John Arnold Foundation, now John, Thanks. now Arnold Boo -boo. Ventures, <laughs> a philanthropic organization dedicated to finding quote science uh, quote evidence based eliminating solutions public pensions <laughs> for social problems, summarized quote studies have identified a few interventions that are truly effective, but these are exceptions that have emerged from testing a much larger pool, most including those thought promising based on initial studies are found to produce small or no effects. So basically, the argument, again, here, is that all of these things that you're talking about, Phil, mm -hmm. these, like, all, and all, many of the programs that we critique constantly, that these things should work, basically, right? And that if they, and the fact that they don't proves that there are interventions that need to be happening at the level of sequencing people's fucking genomes to figure out whether right. they need more assistance rather than, I don't know, like fundamentally reshaping or reforming the like political economy or I don't yeah. know, dethroning fucking capitalism. See, you know, you know, the great <laughs> thing about social science is that you don't have to look at genetics. All you have to do, like it's, and, and this is the thing is that like, do you really believe, okay, for example, that when you look at cross-national studies, for example, of inequality, of homelessness, of pick your social poison, right? <laughs> and the question you have to ask yourself, this is like my Clint Eastwood, Dirty Harry line, the question you have to ask yourself, <laughs> punk, is, is the variation across countries and in inequality more likely to be explained by major genetic differences across countries <laughs> or maybe like some fucking difference in social policy that like and affects the, the whole economy, population. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's just, I, oh. I, and the thing is, yeah, I like, you might be, you might be saying to yourself, but Phil, you don't study genetics. You're goddamn right. I don't <laughs> uh, like, <laughs> because I don't have to, because the, even the basic fucking thought experiment that, that like the toy level thought experiment that might help us understand inequality across countries the answer cannot be that it's genetic differences across countries that's absurd and if yeah. and, and like if you really buy that send me an email send me a long email <laughs> with all of the reasons why that seems plausible 
Right. And I will talk about it on the show. And you may even cause me and if you and if you wish my death, you may even cause me an aneurysm by writing that email. So I'm giving you I'm handing you Chekhov's fucking gun. Uh so anyway. Oh. Can I just get you to just for a gentle dunk real quick? Can you read the tagline of how she describes the Arnold Foundation again, what she calls it? Uh, a philanthropic organization dedicated to finding, quote, evidence based solutions for social problems. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, even even in just like the framing, right, of like what she says the Arnold Foundation does, who, who we joke about all the time, like right. for studying why children in prison are depressed. Right. instead of saying why are children in prison yeah. right like that's sort of the classic joke that we make about them right but like it, i think it's important to recognize that like this project right this the study of what explains social problems like that is just eugenics as a discipline like we yeah. changed the name right but uh again citing changed the name to anti-eugenics apparently right yeah it's citing the uh 1913 january 12th 1913 glowing interview in the new york times with davenport titled social problems have proven basis of heredity what the work done in the eugenics record office at cold spring harbor has proved in scientific race investigation Again, like the, there is a there is an elaborate branding exercise that goes on every couple of years, you know, like in 2018, it was like this book called Blueprint. There, there was like the other one, like the Cult of Smart that came out, like that's supposedly like the leftist version. Every couple of years, eugenics gets like a new dress and it gets dolled up and like rolled out at Cotillion and explained <laughs> how it's not eugenics, right? Like right. in plain sight. And this happens over and over and over again. And as this is reproduced and as this is, you know, sort of built upon and like society, you know, forms this idea and makes it real, right? Like eugenics is not, um, you know, science proving social problems have a basis in heredity, right? Then like there is uh there is this sort of process of collective forgetting that happens, right? Like we forget about all of the like ways that actually eugenics was mostly about like positive policy interventions and educating people about the value of like being careful about how they have children and when, right? And like what happens when they reproduce. And it's amazing because, you know, in her shield section, in the portion of the book where she is really trying to be like, this is how I prove to you I'm not a eugenicist before I propose this sort of eugenics uh, framework I'm calling anti-eugenics. Like she explains heritability and heredity, right? And she talks about the sort of classic examples of like the redheads, right? And eye color and height. And, you know... This feels oddly personal, B. <laughs> well, and things that we've realized about, about heritability, which have made us realize that, you know, marrying cousins is not a good idea. Well, again... 1913, Cold Spring Harbor, glowing interview. What does Davenport tell the New York Times all about? Heritability. Really? The eugenicists are not trying to mate people like cattle. They're just trying to make sure people are making good informed choices mm. so they can raise better children 
in the pursuit of a smarter, better society that's like spending money better on education. And he gives the example of how redheads biologically don't like to fuck. And that's a problem. And that is like a genetic reason that redheads are being bred out of the population. Yeah. Yeah. Then he goes through eye color. Then he talks about how they've recently discovered that it's bad for cousins to fuck, right? Like, there is zero that she has done to improve on what they were doing in 1913. And at a certain point in the book, like, it's just so clear how proud Davenport would have been of her. Like, he would have loved her. She probably Probably, would have been on the team that was trying to cure cancer through eugenics. You know what I mean? Like she would have been their star. And and she's doing a great job representing the same ideas that, that this movement has made itself about. And it's always been about not like, you know, the the sterilization of the population. It's been about how we spend money on people, right? Like it's always about how we spend money and how philanthropies and rich people like John Arnold and spend the money and, and the individual taxpayer. choices. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well and, and if that's true, let's just like let's walk down that that road is that like I think the the reason why it sounds like you know caustic or extremist to say that this this book has a lot in common with old school eugenics despite the author's vociferous claims to the contrary is that what that is taken to mean is that yeah it, it is the uh the the straw man like oh well you're just saying she's a Nazi and that's like ludicrous no uh I think <laughs> I think all I would be claiming if I were to claim that she had a lot in her arguments have a lot in common with eugenics is that they use genetics as an explanation for yeah. things that have many other transparently obvious and far more valuable and, you know, manipulable explanations for the outcomes she purportedly seeks to explain. Oh, and, yeah. you know, again, it's like, Even think about something really basic, okay? Like in the United States, when the Department of Transportation does a cost-benefit analysis of (laughs) planning transportation projects, they treat the, the benefit as, if we build this project, what will the number of hours saved in transit, uh, the, the value of those hours for the person who uses that transit mode be? So, Ultimately, because the people who use airports make far more money than people who use buses, <laughs> airport siting uh, projects are inherently valued more than right. like the creation of like bus rapid transit. So right. th- there's just like one very small and and you might say I don't know insignificant way that inequality gets like reinforced in the United States because we are systematically weighting our policies to benefit people who already are at the you know, on the winning side or close to winning side of the economic lottery. But to say, like, every time something like this comes along, there's this yeah collective amnesia, perhaps, that's, you know, I think born out of the way that liberal social science moves, not because of this is the this is another big problem. Like, not only does, is liberal social science like obsessed with quantification of all things, it's also devoid of any actual theory about society or the world. Right? the The best that you're going to get is Rawls, which who yeah. she employs here. But Rawls has a over lot of problems and over and over again. Yeah. So I mean, like, but like the best you're going to get is Rawls. But even like many of the liberal social scientists who do this kind of stuff, they don't they don't really read Rawls even, uh, or or understand <laughs> like that theory of society. But like. 
there's no there's no coherent thing. So like what happens as a result of not having a theory of how things work, um, you have this there is this collective amnesia that every time something like this comes out, there's like very few questions like, hey, wait a minute. What about all of these other completely relevant things that we talk about all the time? And actually, there are many plausible solutions to that don't involve like cracking the human genome open <laughs> and trying to like apply poly like this administrative project that would be the largest in like contemporary society. Not, not to say that countries haven't been trying this India for one example, uh, is like, you know, genomically tracking their population in a more rigorous way. Like we're countries are totally trying this. Um, but it's this, this idea that like, we oh yeah somehow we've forgotten about all of these other things that really do matter for explaining societal outcomes and and now it's like oh yeah what an interesting idea and i think what it does even if you don't buy if you if you're reticent or you're talking to somebody who's reticent to buy the line that this has a lot in common with eugenics i think of you know another and i think equally weighty argument is the idea that this like style of argumentation is just this like impo- this like this like promised land that has no bearing <laughs> on anything we know about how social inequality is produced and reproduced. Uh, you have to willingly ignore generations of social scientific research to accept this as being the new like gospel of how we're going to fix inequality. But when you read science journalism, this is what happens. And I think you know the practical thing is like okay it. It actually just even if even if no one implements these solutions, even if this is just something that we, you know, people read for a time. And then later on, when you go to your middle class friends houses, you see it on the shelf. and You're like, oh, if you read that. Yeah, I read that long ago. Uh, I don't know really what what it said, but it was interesting at the time. Like even if if all it does is that and not actually anybody implementing these solutions, it just further distances and somehow like creates this like level of dissociation with how social problems are in fact solved. Absolutely. And, uh, and it's just like, I, I mean, that's, that's, that is the rhetoric. That is the genre characteristic of pop science Yeah, uh, yeah. is that it just moves. It has a way of like, of, of, of essentially being misdirection. Right. And this is why social reproductive theory is so important. And I think like, uh, you know, if you think about how, you know, what you were saying, even if this just survives and people think about it for a while and people talk about the book and then the next book comes out and, you know, you know, I, in my head, I was like conjuring up images of white people at holiday parties talking about genetics over a turkey or something. You know what I mean? Like celebrating the sort of their intellectual Atlantic monthly lives, right? And sort of discussing this. And that's that's very key social reproductive work. Like we talk about how social reproduction works at a really big scale often on this show, but like the original social reproductive theory is more about how at this very small micro level, the state like offloads these educational and onboarding and training capacities onto like these biological family units, right? It's a kind of like um, forcing people to like sink their cost into the capitalist machine, right? And so, you know, it's a lot about education and, and socialization and, and the home and and like the work of like uh, homemakers and, and, you know, people who bear children and raise children or whatever. But we also have to think about, you know, the, the way that... <laughs> 
everything in our world is socially constructed, right? Like things are real, but we we define their parameters through language and through social interactions and through relations between each other and through conversations where we negotiate what the boundaries of things are and what they mean, right? Yeah. And I know this might sound like really heady for a second, but like, hear me out. So like what what goes on, right, is that even when this book just exists and is dinner party topic, this is like, you know, cocktail conversation like that in and of itself makes these things real and it makes them tangible and it makes them reproducible and it makes them able to be mapped onto all sorts of things from people's interpersonal reactions, how they value each other, how they think of their relationship to their job. You know, it 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 does change things. It it's out there. It shapes the way the world is now because it exists and because it exists unchallenged and supported by all of these other echo changers of social reproduction and cultural production, et cetera, right? And what eugenics actually is, like, and what genetics is, and what even she says in her book Genetics is, is the study of difference, right? Like, she says that verbatim in the book. And so what eugenics is, is it's not necessarily, like, a type of person or an ideology. It's not conservative. It's not liberal. It's not progressive. It's not regressive. It is simply a attempt to make better difference within the body politic, within the population of human beings. Or to act on that difference, right. to act on that and to to view and utilize things in this individuation. Because, you know, her own her own um, schema, even when she talks about like, oh, these people who want to be gene blind or whatever, right. she has her eugenic. She, she says like. Uh, so this is what the bad, this is what eugenics would say, which is bad. This is what I would say, which is anti-eugenic. And then she says like, this is what gene blind people say who want to pretend that there's no genetic difference. And it's like a complete straw man because like no one is saying that there aren't genetic differences. It's a fucking like jubilee of genetic variation out there. Right. right. And that's fucking awesome. Like there's so much fucking genetic difference all over the fucking place. That doesn't mean that we should like put it under a microscope and decide like, okay, this means that th- this person should go to a different type of school. Right. Like that's right. fucking crazy. And, and eugenics is just using um, genetic difference, right? The study, statistical study of genetic difference to tell a story about the way the world is and the way the world could be, right? And that right. story can be told so many different ways. But the point of the matter is, is that eugenics principally at it at its core it means telling a story about how to get somewhere with the population using the statistical study of genes which right. are the study of difference between individual human beings right so at a very base level there is absolutely not a single like thing supporting her claim that she is an anti-eugenicist because if you actually look at what eugenics is and what she even says her discipline is right at a textual level all biases aside all taboos aside that's what she's doing it's not personal this is an objective i'm making an objective evaluation also honestly like eugenics is a fundamentally capital like or rather 
capitalism is fundamentally eugenic in its operations and in its flavor. So I think that honestly, like if you were trying to do, if you're trying to make any sort of anti-eugenic framework and you're not explicitly anti-capitalist or communist or whatever, the, that is not going to work. I mean, there's this whole thing, actually, there's this thing, uh, like, uh, put forward in the, in the book itself, for example, where she basically draws almost on practically almost on like the social model of disability mm-hmm. actually, where she's basically like, you know, the like social environment is like what makes these differences matter. It's not that the differences matter themselves, but like that sociological factors and environmental factors and all these other things kind of work together to basically make it so that like people who have X or Y difference or something are less advantaged than other people who don't have those or who have other, you know, whatever in her framework, genetic differences. And what's interesting and like, what what's really interesting is that it just reminds me of how within the social model of disability the like the vanilla one you know the like standard off right. the shelf social model not like the original version or like stuff like the interventions that Marta Russell did what's like really interesting about like the social model for example is there's this there's this like often repeated line this like myth practically that has no there's like no one who's ever said like I we know where it comes from but there's no one who's ever said like what the proof quote unquote of this is but there's this myth that like industrial realization created the category of disability because then or like made it like negative basically right and that made it that like basically socially or economically or whatever that like people who had different types of disabilities were then suddenly like looked at as as you know an, an underclass or something because with like industrialized machinery and stuff and having to operate industrialized machinery but like if you really look at it and this is one of the things that B and I write about in our book actually but like if you really look at it the policies and first of all obviously that whole lineage people when people talk about that is fundamentally centered on like it's extremely eurocentric oh and but it's like, usually by pointing out just, like you know people had court gestures and paid to keep the town like crazy person like to put you know do oh whatever gardening like yeah. it's very yeah but anyways. like but but so if, even if you stick eurocentric the policies that started <laughs> in europe that first basically classified disability as an underclass were immediately pre-capitalism so in (laughs) fact actually if uh so much much before industrialization is what i mean so basically you know so from like from my perspective if we're going to do correlation causation anything like it seems more like in order for capitalism to work it had to basically interest like have some sort of social uh, apparatus like this, like some sort of fucking eugenic ideology underpinning it, which could then, you know, be defined as eugenics many, many years right. later. But you know what I mean? It's like it's the I mean, the whole whatever, the whole enterprise is ridiculous. Well, And, and ultimately, like what what you actually see when you look at at where the sort of need for this comes from. Right. It, it's directly tied into not just capitalism, but racial capitalism, because this is ultimately what eugenic uh, policies and what eugenic thought and the sort of beginning of statistical study before we even have genes, but just the statistical and scientific study of difference and how that starts to affect lawmaking and governance and how we think of finance and welfare and what our responsibilities are to each other with individual relations within like communities, within communities to each other and within like communities to the state and the sovereign as a whole, right? Like all of these things are really shifting and the poor laws are coming out and you have colonial and imperial expansion and you have like these these 
problems of, of financial overextension, right? That these big monarchies are like having problems managing the populations at the far reaches of their colonial empires. And so what you have is this, this sort of statistical study of difference and dissent and antisocial behavior or vagrancy or why people aren't working, why people are refusing to be like good, productive, sovereign subjects, right? Starts to become this, this means of trying to tell a story about, you know, why they're having trouble with money at the borders, right? Why they can't get the colonies under control. Couldn't possibly be that what they're doing is wrong or what they're doing right. is bad or that what they're, what doing, they're doing is, is generating the problem that then genetics is supposed to come into. Right. Yeah, right. Speak like to. could it could it possibly be that? Because that might, you know, that does not like fit the story that they're telling themselves, right? So, so what eugenic ideology really is, is just a different story. It's a story that takes, it turns its back to racial capitalism as hard as it possibly can. And that's why it's like dangerous. And that's why, you know, when you are a eugenicist, people hate you because you suck, because you're someone who licks <laughs> boots for racial capitalism and like <laughs> prays at the church of like difference. And it's, you know, get a life. I'm sorry. Yeah, totally. Go off B. Go off B. I no, I, I mean, and, and that's a really, I like the way that you, you put that because to read a book like this, one, you know, you're always interrogating the claims that the author is making. And in this case, I mean, okay, <laughs> that was easy, uh, easily done. <laughs> uh, but like, I think the far more interesting thing for me is to read this book. I'm always thinking about the the market, the audience, the public sphere in which it is constituted because you're not a you don't come to writing this book it just through graduate training and right. and work as a as a geneticist or a, you know work, somebody working even in population research like there's a series of things that you read interactions you have with people there's a broader milieu into which this book is is sort of you know being interposed and like the one thing that I think is interesting is this the way that the term gene blind kind of comes because that like what she's yeah. explicitly mm -hmm. the, the the metaphor that she's explicitly like drawing on here as we think we may, may have mentioned is this idea of like race blind policy right which is a which is a criticism of of I think the sort of post Bakke uh, you know judicial philosophy that like you know any attempt to redress uh, racial hierarchy through public policy is wrong because we have to be race blind. The only way to actually be anti-racist is to be race blind. That's the sort of conservative line that came out like in the Bakke case in the, in the 1970s, you know, but like the problem with race blindness is not merely a problem of like blindness to racial inequalities, but is a blindness to the, history of like institutional practices that generated them right and like it, a blindness to governments need to redress and the ongoing yeah exactly and ongoing right and the like to just like copy that over to gene blind is a like and you know it's is to say is to is to actually draw an equivalence between things that we 
have done like as a government are doing as 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 like a state to perpetuate uh these sorts of things and it's it's like the the whole point is that she never gets beyond the individual level explanation for inequalities she may not be talking about worth anymore but she is just replacing that it's like oh the reason that people don't get ahead isn't because that they're lazy or not meritorious it's just because of something that's in their dna that we could actually like you know deal with or intervene in that way like so like that's something that like it's such an insidious thing but like Mm -hmm. i think you have to see that sort of whole discourse is, is like informing it. And really that's, that's her, that's the, the, the basis on which she's trying to win over. I would say certainly like racial liberals uh, to, to her cause. Yeah. The other thing that I think is, is unmistakable has left an unmistakable like imprint is the idea that the way to redress problems is through means testing and through policies <laughs> yeah. that like, mm-hmm. like I guess my other like thought experiment is, do you think in our social policies we have means tested too much or not enough? And if your answer is not enough, then the question is like, should we further means test on the way that we do now or do what she says and means test on an even more granular and invasive and I I think truly dubious. I mean, like, would you want to means test people based on their fingerprints? For example, I mean, like it's, uh, and, and the point is like, if you think that we haven't means tested enough and that that is the reason why inequality persists in the world. (laughs) Again, I dare you to read any, any, cross-national study of social policy or inequality any uh just like really basic kind of uh social scientific explanation for variations in like the gini coefficient like it's really not very hard to debunk the things that are really the core like if her argument has any weight at all it has weight in the sense that there are policy implications of it but those policy implications (laughs) fail at the first blush so Mm -hmm. i mean just like this is this is the problem is that like because she has this expertise uh you know social scientists are being bid to like take this seriously and they will not because necessarily of anything that um she's saying or the sort of methodological prowess or sophistication but it's because (laughs) it provides social science a way of getting another escape hatch for t- from talking about class, mm-hmm. for yeah. talking about capitalism. It allows exactly. them to live in a, a version 2.0 of 1990s sociology <laughs> where, you know, we were really having this debate with like Murray, mm-hmm. um, but now it gives them a new ground on which to like have that debate. And I guess my thing is like, life is short. Why bother fucking doing that? Right. Like it's just point, it's just pointless. You know, uh, there are, there's, there's a reason, uh, why we, you know, have not developed perhaps sophisticated solutions to, uh, thinking about, or the, the really actually useful solutions to like issues of inequality haven't been solved is because many of the things that really would be the biggest hammers, uh, on the problem have been, through a process of uh, sort of deliberate sort of selection 
like cast out of the policy arena and thought of as things that we cannot do. And so she, instead of doing that, she's like, well, you know, here's this other thing that looks a lot. See, the thing is the book works because what she's proposing looks a lot like what we already do, which is means testing. That's yeah, why yep, the exactly. book has any persuasive appeal at all. It's just means testing with some additional funding towards GWAS. Really? That's what she's calling for. Right, which exactly. And the the part of the solution, among the many other things that uh, you were saying, Phil, is to not even, to not means test and to do, anyway, whatever. I want to let Catherine Page Harden respond because I think, (laughs) because I think um, there's... Let the girl boss speak for herself. When you ask that question, like, what is this written for? Like, in what context is this written? Because obviously, as you mentioned, like, there's, as you, as you kind of mentioned at the top of your thing, there's like, you know, this doesn't just appear, you don't just end up doing this. There's some reason, right? And so there's, I think this book is, as B mentioned from the top, written very defensively, but there are these moments where it peeks through how assertive she wants to be with this claim, really. And I think that this passage for me really sums up how she thinks about uh, and what she might even say to some of the criticisms that we've just levied over like the last couple of like really the last couple like threaded through the last couple of like parts of this conversation specifically about the intersection of you know genetics and social policy etc that she's proposing but um so this is this is what she says about why it's not taken seriously and how important it is to factor in genetic research into social policy and into our understanding of a whole number of things. So this is from a section uh, subheaded, the tacit collusion to ignore genetics. I'm so glad you picked this passage. Quote, many scientists in the fields of education, psychology and sociology simply pretend that genetics does not apply to them. The sociologist Jeremy Fries summarized the situation as follows. This is a block quote within the quote. Currently, many quarters of social science still practice a kind of epistemological tacit collusion in which genetic confounding potentially poses significant problems for inference, but investigators do not address it in their own work or raise it in evaluating the work of others. Such practice involves wishful assumptions if our world is one in which, quote unquote, everything is heritable. Freeze was writing in 2008, this is Catherine still, uh, but the situation now is no different. Open almost any issue of a scientific journal in education or developmental psychology or sociology and you will find paper after paper announcing correlations between parental characteristics and child development outcomes, parental income and child brain structure, maternal depression and child intelligence. Each of these papers represents a massive amount of investigator time and public investment in the research process, and each of these papers has, in Freeze's words, an incisive, significant, and easily explained flaw. That differences in children's environments are entangled with the genetic differences between them, but no serious effort is being expended toward disentangling them. The tacit collusion among many social scientists, people like Phil, asshole, (laughs) just kidding, I'm... (laughs) I'm adding that if she were as if she were here, the tacit collusion among many social scientists to ignore genetics is motivated, I believe, by well-intentioned but ultimately misguided fears. The fear that even considering the possibility of genetic influence implies a biodeterminism or genetic reductionism they would find abhorrent. The fear that genetic data will inexorably be misused to classify people in ways that strip them of rights and opportunities. Certainly there are misuses of genetic data that need 
to be guarded against, which I will but, return but to we'll in chapter 12. we'll just pass over those. <laughs> God, stupid But fish. while researchers might have good intentions, the widespread practice of ignoring genetics and social science research has significant costs. And this is the real banner part, but in order to understand this part... Okay. You got to get the previous bit. In the past few years, the field of psychology has been rocked by a replication crisis in which it has become clear that many of the field's splashy findings published in the top journals could not be reproduced and are likely to be false. Writing about the methodological practices that led to the mass production of illusory findings, practices known as p-hacking, the psychologist Joseph Simons and his colleagues wrote that, quote, everyone knew p-hacking was wrong, but they thought it was wrong the way it is wrong to jaywalk. Really, however, quote, it was wrong the way it is wrong to rob a bank, unquote. Like p-hacking, again, this is Catherine, like p-hacking, the tacit collusion in some areas of the social sciences to ignore genetic differences between people is not wrong in the way that jaywalking is wrong. Researchers are not taking a victimless shortcut by ignoring something, in parentheses, genetics, that is only marginally relevant to their work. It's wrong in the way that robbing banks is wrong. It's stealing. Stealing is in italics it's Mm -hmm. stealing people's time when researchers work to churn out critically flawed scientific papers and other researchers chase false leads that will go nowhere it's stealing people's money when taxpayers and private foundations like the arnold foundation support policies premised on the shakiest of causal foundations failing to take genetics seriously is a scientific practice that pervasively undermines our stated goal of understanding society so that we can improve it. Okay. So we're all colluding. That's, that's she got anti-eugenics. us. No, she got us. I just I can't believe you would go all the way to. Okay, one, I can't believe you would go all the way to. It's stealing to not well, cite first of all, my research. Calling it tacit asshole, but collusion, like, then comparing it to p hacking, and then calling it stealing, and then also fundamentally remember. <laughs> Uh, eugenics was bad because they uh, they were seeking through whatever means using genetics to uh, Im- quote unquote improve society by the way what I would like to do is quote unquote improve society and I am not a eugenicist by the way definitely <laughs> not like come on what a historical I mean, but like, this is okay Let, let's let's break this down okay replication crisis in <laughs> psychology yeah the last um, time that happened in psychology that's when they started like basically actually i mean this is actually kind of interesting not to interrupt you again sorry but like uh, early 20th century literally there was a replication crisis in psychology such that basically internal medicine was actually like way advancing in terms of being able to replicate its findings and have like significantly safer and better new procedures and things like that psychology needed to find some corresponding thing to like actually prove anything that they were trying and so they started (laughs) doing like lobotomies and electroshock <laughs> therapy but i digress please continue but yeah no, no no but it's like okay there's no oh there's no solution to the replication crisis uh systematic reviews meta-analysis maybe uh we don't we definitely <laughs> don't do those it's like it's certainly not the case that we've have any like ability to review studies and look for risk of bias and then pool average treatment effects like no, no, we, we don't do that. And then because we definitely don't do that, we then have to look at something like genetics, which, you know, explains, oh, I don't know, 
10 to 15 percent of the variance in outcomes like years of schooling or performance on standardized tests or, God forbid, IQ test scores, even though things like parental education explain around 10 percent more of the variance. Like (laughs) no one is no one is sorry, because we have found other explanations that seem to be more robust and more implementable and on a broader sense like because like not every country has done as poorly on reducing inequality as the United States has (laughs) for reasons Mm -hmm. that I can guarantee to you have nothing to do with with, with, with genetics nothing to do with genetics okay yeah all I'm saying is maybe it makes sense that we haven't paid as much attention as a person who studies only this thing would like us to. And like, this is the thing, uh, you know, we all are egocentric, you know, like academics are all to a great extent egocentric. (laughs) You don't get cited. You feel sad inside. You know, you don't get invited to the conference. You feel sad inside too fucking bad. Like because the world does not exist to serve your discipline. Like we don't like the reason Maybe you want to like take a a statistical principle, the null hypothesis. Maybe people have been ignoring you because you have nothing relevant to fucking contribute. Maybe you want to accept the null hypothesis there for a second. Um, And and like, of course, she rejects the null without having a lot of, you know, evidence to, you know, to suggest that we should. Um, but, and and it's not just about like weighting the merits of different scientific studies against one another. It's a question of like, what is a wise choice for people in authority to make? And like, what is the wisest way of like, uh, solving public problems? And yeah, you know, we do a lot of very stupid things. One of them is not not paying attention to you children, <laughs> like in genetics. Right. No, and I, I think that's like the perfect point to end on, Philip, because it just kind of like, I, I think that I've enjoyed talking about this book because you know it's just like you're going to run into just people talking about this as if it's the yeah. most clever thing they've heard about recently or, you know, like you're going to see people sending each other. Or because she's a scientist like, as fact. It'll be like, but you right. know, there's differences in blah, 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 blah. This happens all, yeah, yeah. All yeah, time. like I'm sure like it, many of, of, of the people who are listening to this right now are going to experience like someone in their life like sending them a link like, did you hear this great interview on NPR? So like I'm really glad we did this because like this book needs pushback you know what i mean yeah so it's truly bad it's just a bad piece of writing also just frankly i don't know yeah absolutely it's not good also don't like what it's trying to do don't like anything about it i'm glad that we did this but i'm glad that i do not have to ever probably read it again i hope to god please do not please Catherine page harden do not give me a reason to ever have to revisit this fucking trash. Well, I have some writing I wanted to do about it, but I was joking to Artie that the hard copy that I marked up so extensively uh, while we were prepping for this episode is going to be the first thing that goes into the Death Panel archive. Oh, good. That's that, I'm glad that'll be in box for one, history. folder one. And, and, exactly. and as I mentioned before, like if you want to email me and, and try to make an argument uh, on behalf of this, my <laughs> email is... Uh, Slowboring at slowboring.com. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yep, yeah. 
attention Matt. That's our intern. Well, patrons, again, thank you so much for supporting the show. If you want to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, or follow us at deathpanel underscore. And we will catch you later in the week in the main feed episode. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Content warning. Matthew Iglesias. I think the genome merits our attention as, as one dimension of inequality, one starting point in life that does have associations with how people end up in life in ways that we care about. And so this is, I mean, where you get into the more uh, philosophical or, or political aspects of this. But, you know, one thing I think people are very comfortable with is the idea, I mean, we we observe, right, that, you know, there are big inequalities in living standards in our society, and that those inequalities transmit to some extent from one generation mm-hmm. to another. And, you know, so people will look and they'll say, oh, you know, Matt's a writer, his dad was a writer, both of his grandparents were writers, his mom was not a writer, but she worked at Newsweek. And you say, ah, like, this is nepotism, right? Like, like the system mm-hmm. is rigged, and that's really, really bad. But then people will say, well, I don't know, maybe he just, like, inherited a good writing from all these these writers in his family. And so, you know, good for him, like the system works. It's all it's all fair. We're we're living in a great meritocracy. Um and your view is we shouldn't necessarily think of those things as so so different, right, in their implications. Yeah, I I think it might be the wrong the wrong point of emphasis 